Welcome everybody to week two of Back to Basics. Now, for those of you who weren't with us last week, what we're doing in this series is we're exploring some of the basic beliefs of the Christian faith. Beliefs that are at the core not only of who we are as followers of Jesus, but also beliefs that are at the core of who we are as a church family. Because of all the diversity, all the political, racial, demographic differences, socioeconomic differences, all of that diversity across all of our campuses, it is these essential beliefs that allow us to be united as one. Or as we like to say here at Cedar Creek, on the essentials of the faith, we have unity. On the non-essentials of the faith, we have freedom. But in all things, we show love. And so last week, we kicked off this journey by looking at really what I would say is the most basic belief we have, and that is our belief about God. Not just our belief in God, the vast majority of people on the planet believe that there is a God. What is unique for us is what we believe about who God is and what God is like. And so last week, we spent a little bit of time kind of talking about the Trinity, the triune nature of God, one God eternally existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We spent a little bit of time on that, but we spent the vast majority majority of our time focusing on the unchanging nature of God, what theologians call his immutability, that God has never, nor will he ever change. And we discovered that is great news for us, particularly in the constant, rapid, changing world in which we live. We can anchor our hope and our lives to the God who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so today, I want to look at a second belief that I believe is, is right there with our belief in God, almost equal to it, and that is what we believe about the Bible. And the reason I say that it's a, an equally important belief is because if what we believe about God is at the foundation of our faith, then the source of where we get our information about God is incredibly important. So here's our belief statement when it comes to the Bible. It's simply this. We believe that the Bible is God's word and is the supreme source of truth for Christian beliefs and living. And because it is inspired by God, it is truth without error as originally Given. Let me give that to you one more time. We believe that the Bible is God's word and is the supreme source of truth for Christian beliefs and living. And because it is inspired by God, it is truth without error as originally given. In other words, here's what we believe about the Bible. That the Bible is not man's idea about God. The Bible is God's revelation about himself to man. And the reason we believe that about the Bible is because that's what the Bible says about itself. In fact, notice in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, all scripture, all of the Bible is inspired by God 
and is useful to teach us what is true. Not only what is true about God, but what is true about ourselves, what is true about life, what is true about right and wrong. Now, I think most of us would agree that the Bible is pretty central to our faith, right? And yet, there's a lot most of us don't know about the Bible. In fact, let me just ask, how many of you have at least one question about the Bible. Do you have some questions about the Bible? Yeah. And those of you that didn't raise your hands, you obviously don't know that the Bible says thou shalt not lie. Because we all have questions about the Bible. Scholars, biblical scholars who have spent their entire lives studying the Bible have questions about the Bible. And so what I want to do today is answer some questions about the Bible. Now, I may not answer your specific question about the Bible, but I do want to answer four major questions that people have about the Bible. But before I do that, let me just say this up front. Today's message is going to be dramatically different than the type of messages you're used to hearing here at Cedar Creek Church. If you've been around a while, you know, most of the time in the messages, we take a passage of scripture, we unpack it, talk about what truth is being taught in it, and then we spend the bulk of our time talking about how to apply that truth, right? How to live out this Sunday morning truth in our Monday morning realities. Well, today's going to feel a little bit more like a college lecture, I'm actually going to try to cram about two years worth of seminary in about 25 or 30 minutes. So you're going to feel a little bit today like you're drinking from a fire hydrant, but it's okay. I only have one mouth. You have two ears. So you should easily be able to keep up. No, we're going to talk about some of these things that are foundational, right? And so I'll talk slow. You listen fast. We should be okay. All right. First key key question about the Bible is what is it? What is the Bible, right? What are some basic facts about this book? Well, one of the basic facts is that the Bible is not a book. It's actually a collection of books. In fact, the word Bible is literally a plural word. It comes from the word biblio, which means library or collection of books. And so it's not a book, it's a lot of books put together. That's why you can't really read the Bible like a novel, right? You can't start in Genesis and read through to Revelation and it doesn't follow this, you know, chronological path and this story here and this person here, right? Any of you ever tried to read through the Bible in a year, you know, you start off, how many of you have ever tried that read through? How many of you gave up when you got to Leviticus and Deuteronomy? Yeah, right. Because Genesis and Exodus is a, they are historical books. They are like a novel. They tell a story about events and people and they follow a chronological order. And then you turn from Exodus, Leviticus, and it's like you pulled a book off the shelf of a law library, right? It's all these rules and do this and sacrifice this way. And you're like, What does that have to do with what was happening, right? Because the Bible is not a book, it is a collection of books. In fact, write this down. 
The Bible is a collection of 66 books written over a period of nearly 1,500 years by about 40 different authors. Again, 66 books written over a period of 1,500 years by about 40 different authors. Now, some of you are saying, wait a minute, what do you mean about 40 different authors? Don't we know who wrote all the books of the Bible? Well, most, yeah, but there are a few where the authorship of those books is still uncertain, right? It doesn't say in the text itself, you know, greetings from the apostle Paul, or, or this is the apostle John checking in. No, in fact, Hebrews is an example of that. The New Testament book of Hebrews, we're not 100% sure who wrote that, uh, some scholars believe that Paul wrote it because it does sound a little bit like Paul's writing. Some scholars think that there may have been multiple writers to it. So maybe it's 39 authors, maybe it's 41 authors. We know the majority of them, but we don't know all of them. The second thing you need to understand about the Bible, this library, this connection or collection of books is divided into two major sections or volumes that are separated by about 400 years in history. The, the first volume is called the Old Testament, which by the way, the word testament just means agreement or covenant. And so the old agreement between God and man is found in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, notice on your chart there, the Old Testament is made up of 39 books from Genesis to Malachi. Those books were written somewhere between 1400 and 400 BC. So they were written over about a thousand year period. The primary language of the Old Testament is Hebrew. However, there are four passages in the Old Testament that are written in Aramaic the common street language of the day. And the primary focus of the Old Testament is God's creation of, pursuit of, and relationship with the nation of Israel. That is what the Old Testament focuses on. The New Testament, the new agreement, the new covenant is made up of 27 books, beginning with Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, going all the way through to the book of Revelation, the prophetic book about Jesus' return and the end of time on this earth. Those books were written between 45 A.D., and 95 AD. So right, about 49 years after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection till about 95 years after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The primary language of the New Testament is Greek. However, there are some passages in Hebrew and some passages in Aramaic. The primary focus, now get this, the primary focus of the New Testament is Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, the birth and growth of the New Testament church, his church, and of his eventual return. That is what the New Testament focuses on. The reason I want you to understand the different focus between the Old and the New Testament is because it's so important to recognize what those testaments are telling us about God, right? Now, the Bible has one theme 
from Genesis to Revelation. It's one big story. It's the story of God's kingdom, his glory, and his pursuit, his redemptive pursuit and plan for mankind. But the focus of the Old Testament and the focus of the New Testament are different. That's why God appears to seem different in the Old Testament and New Testament. We talked about this last week. Like in the Old Testament, it seems like God is really mean and smites people and you know he's a real hard God a tough old man and then you get to the New Testament and all of a sudden God is nice and full of grace and forgiveness You're like what happened did God get his morning coffee you know become a, a nicer person no the focus of the Old Testament is on God's relationship with the nation of Israel the basis of that relationship is the law and sacrifice and so the focus is on God's justice That's what the focus of the Old Testament is. It's not that you can't read about God's mercy in the Old Testament, but the primary focus is God's justice. Then when you get to the New Testament, justice has been served. The debt has been paid, right? And so now the relationship between God and man is a grace-based relationship. And so the emphasis of the New Testament is on God's grace and mercy. It's not that you can't find God's justice in the New Testament, but the primary focus is on God's grace and mercy, right? That's why, you know, preachers who are kind of hellfire and brimstone, that's why they almost always teach out of and quote from the Old Testament, because it's about God's justice. Then on the other hand, you got pastors who are all about God's love and grace and forgiveness. They tend to always preach out of the New Testament and quote out of the New Testament. Either one is out of balance, right? You need the full counsel of God's word to get the full picture of who God is. Is. That's why as a church, we try to uh, have a balanced diet in our teaching to give you the whole picture of God's word because the whole Bible reveals the character of our God. So that's what the Bible is. Second question, how was it written? If the Bible is the words of God, how did these words get written down? Right? Well, the best way to answer that or the best way to understand that is that the Bible is a divine human book. Let me say that again. The Bible is a divine human book. What do I mean by that? This is on your outline. I mean that the Bible was written by men under the inspiration of God. The Bible was written down by men, but they did so under the inspiration of God. God. In other words, while it was humans who put pen to paper, they did so under God's inspiration and direction. Again, notice again that verse we started with from 2 Timothy. Notice the first part of it. It says, all scripture is what? What's that phrase? Inspired by God. Circle the word inspired. Because this is written in the New Testament, the Greek word there for inspired literally means God breathed. And in fact, this is really interesting. That is the only place that that word, that Greek word appears in the entire Bible. It's the only place you'll read that particular Greek verb. But 
There is a Hebrew phrase that is found in the Old Testament that means the exact same thing, that God breathed into something. Any guesses about where that's found? Yeah, in in Genesis, remember the creation of Adam? God creates Adam from the dust of the earth, but then he breathes life into Adam. And the Bible is saying God did the exact same thing with his word. He breathed life into it. That's why we say the Bible is living and active. It's not that we believe this Bible is going to get up and run around the room and do magical things. We believe that it has the breath, the life of God in it. And here's why this is so very important. Because if this book is just a collection of some people's ideas and opinions about God, then it might be an interesting book, but it's certainly not worthy of building your life on. Notice 2 Peter 1. It says, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture, in other words, nothing that's in here, ever came from the prophet, the writer's own understanding. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Did you catch that? Not they spoke for God, they spoke from God. So what does that mean? That God put them in a trance and controlled their hand with the pen, you know, like some kind of zombie writing machine? No, if that were the case, then the Bible would tell one story from one point of view one writing style, and one personality. And it doesn't do that. When you read the Bible, you find a variety of writing styles and a variety of personalities coming through the authors, right? Like take Paul and John, right? Paul, both are writers and part of the New Testament. Paul, pretty edgy personality, kind of an in-your-face kind of guy. John, on the other hand, is a very tender, soft-hearted. You see those personalities coming through in the way that they write. So no, God did not put people in a trance and have them write whatever he wanted to say. He spoke through them, through their personalities, through their points of view, through their experience. Now, here's why that's very important. That means that when you read the Bible, it is not just about the words on the page. It's not just about this word and this passage and this scripture. It's so important to understand the context of these words, right? Who wrote them? Why did they write them? Who were they writing to? What were the circumstances and conditions that were happening? Because you understand the biblical authors didn't know they were biblical authors, right? They didn't know that God was going to take what they wrote and make it part of the Bible that we could have thousands of years later. They were just dealing with what they were dealing with, but God's Holy Spirit was inspiring and guiding them through that whole process. That's why it's so important to get context down when you're trying to understand the truth of God's Word. So that's what the Bible is. That's how the Bible was written. That leads to a third question in, how did it get put together? How was the Bible put together, right? Since you got all these books written by different authors over 1,500 years, how do we end up with these 66 books in this specific order? Because I don't know if you know this or not, but not everything God ever did or said 
was written down and put in the Bible. Not everything that Jesus ever did and said was written down in the Bible. In fact, the Bible says if it were, there would not be enough books or pages in the world. Our Bible would have to go in about 25, you know, big 18-wheelers to carry all of it. Not everything was written down. In fact, look at John chapter 20. It says the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these, these specific words were written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. In other words, you don't have all the information about God and about Jesus, but we have more than enough to believe that, that Jesus is who he says he is and he did who, what he said he did. See, that truth it's why I don't freak out when people go, well, you can't trust the Bible because there are no dinosaurs in the Bible. And, you know, I'm like, the Bible was not written to be a book of natural history. I, I don't care that there are no dinosaurs in there. And just let me say this, by the way, if you ever read the book of Job, there's an animal in there called the Leviathan that is described, seems a lot like a dinosaur to me. I don't know. I don't really care. The purpose of the Bible wasn't to teach me natural history. It was to reveal God to me. And listen, not only is not everything God and Jesus did and said written down in the Bible, but not every ancient text that was written about God and about Jesus in the same time period that these books were written, not every one of those texts ended up in the Bible. In fact, if you're familiar with the Catholic tradition or the Catholic church or a Catholic Bible, you know they have not only the Old Testament or New Testament, but they've got a collection of books called the Apocrypha. It's separate from the Old and the New Testament. It's got like First and Second Maccabees in it. It's got all these books that you probably never heard of unless you were a part of the Catholic church. And of course, some of y'all remember, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, Dan Brown, the author, he made millions of dollars writing fictional novels about apocryphal gospels, the gospel of Thomas, you know, that supposedly Jesus left a child. Th those books were written at the same time as the books of the Bible, and yet they do not have divine authority. Okay, Philip, well, who decided that? Who decided what had divine authority and goes in the Bible? And who decided which ancient texts don't? God did. And I don't say that to be flippant. What I'm saying is in the same way that God inspired and led the authors of the Bible to write what they wrote, God also guided and inspired groups of men to determine what gets left in and what got left out, what was divine and what was merely human writing. And that process is called canonization. Write this down. The process of determining which texts have divine authority is called canonization. Canon with one N. Nothing's getting shot here. It's canon with one N. Now, before you start thinking that the Bible got put together by a group of fat cats sitting in a back room smoking cigars trying to figure out which books they liked the best or, or which books, you know, said things that, that they were comfortable with. Understand that word canon literally means stringent criteria. 
right? There's a stringent criteria to choosing what got put in and canonized and what didn't make the cut. And hear this, when they made those decisions, almost nobody was surprised by what they chose to say was divine, right? When the list came out, nobody's going, well, I can't believe this book didn't get in, and I can't believe, you know, that book got left out. No, these councils that canonized scripture, they were just affirming and putting the stamp of authority on what most, the vast majority of people already believed truly was God's word. Like example, in 90 AD, So we're talking 90 years after Jesus, a council of rabbis got together and canonized the 39 books of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament today. And they said, look, these are the books that are official, right? And you know why they did it in 90 AD? Because the Christian church was starting to grow, right? And remember the Christian community and the Jewish community, they're the same. And so you have Christians, these new followers of the way, attending synagogues, and now they've got some writings, some gospel writings that are starting to circulate. And so the rabbis wanted to be clear about this is from God, this newfangled stuff, this gospel, that is not from God. They were trying to separate out this Christianity from Judaism. And nobody said, wow, I didn't know that was from God, right? 300 years later, in 397 AD, a group of church followers did the same thing with the New Testament books. In fact, the reason they did it is by the fourth century, the church had become more organized and formal in its worship gatherings, and they were starting to read these passages, these letters, these gospels, so they were starting to read them as a part of their worship experience, and so the church father said, look, we need to be real clear in affirming what is appropriate to read in corporate worship because it is the divine word of God and what is not. And so that's what they did. They canonized the books of the New Testament. My point is this, yes, there is obviously a human process in the writing, assembling, and translation of the Bible. But it was all guided by God through his Holy Spirit. Now, one last question. And this is the most important question. And that is, is the Bible reliable? Is the Bible reliable? I mean, it's one thing to understand these facts about the Bible and all this information about what it is and how it got put together. But the most important question is, is this truth? Is what in here truth? One thing's for sure, the Bible certainly declares itself to be true. Notice Proverbs 30, verse 5. It says, every word of God proves true. By the way, that is just one of over 1,500 times where the Bible declares itself to be the true word of God. And I use that particular one because it says, every word of God proves true. Maybe not now. Maybe not in your mind, maybe not in the mind of history, but eventually every word of God will be proven true. Here's an example. For years, serious historians discounted the gospel stories as being real 
because they talked about a Roman ruler named Pontius Pilate, right? Pilate plays a pretty big role in the gospel narrative, right? He's the one that washed his hands and all that, right? Well, there was no record of a Pontius Pilate in any of the ancient Roman documents. There was no archaeology, archaeological finds that had anything. And you think, if this guy was a Roman ruler in Judea, there'd be something, right? There'd be something, nothing. And so people said, look, they're using made-up names for made-up people. You got to discount this whole thing. But all that changed in 1961 when a group of archaeologists in Judea were excavating a site of a first-century Roman amphitheater. And while they were doing that, one of the flat stones that was used as kind of the bottom, the seat in the amphitheater, when they turned it over, it actually had inscriptions on it. And guess whose name was written there? Pontius Pilate, right? See, every word of God proves to That's why you don't need to be scared about science. You don't need to be scared about people who are pursuing truth or have questions. It's okay. God's word will always be true. So if God's word is always true, then the next question is, does the Bible contain the actual words of God? I mean, how do we know that this really is those ancient writings from thousands of years ago. Well, you know, we read earlier in our church's belief statement about the Bible, that we believe that the Bible is truth without error as originally given. Here's the thing. We don't have the original autographs, right? We don't have the original letters that Paul, there's no museum in Cairo or, you know, there, that you can go to and see, oh, this is the letter Paul wrote. This is the actual letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. You can't go and find Mark's or Matthew's gospel, right? Like, like you can go to Washington, D.C. right now, and in the National Archives, you can see the Declaration of Independence, right? The original Declaration of Independence. And you see, man, they got that thing sealed. They treat it, you know, and it's only, what, 200 years old or so, and they have to do all that, and it's still starting to kind of crumble and come apart. Now think about these original writings, right? And there's no modern technology to keep them, so we don't have the original autographs, never have. And so how do we know that what's written in here actually came from the original authors? What, what do we have? How do we get this modern English translation? We got it from copies of copies of copies of the original. It's what's known as transcripts. That's what transcripts are. They are handwritten copies. Remember the time period, right? There's no Xerox machine. And so there were scribes who would copy the original and then others would copy the copies, the copies of the copies. And you think, wait a minute, Philip. If we're reading copies of copies of copies, then there's gotta be mistakes in it. There's gotta be mistakes. Are there? No, I mean, not really. Yeah, there are variants between the transcripts. Like you get one transcript that was found over here, copy of a copy of the Gospel of Mark, and you get another one over here that was found someplace else, and you compare them. There are variants in the transcript, but those variants are always very minor. 
right? Here's what I'm saying. There's no copy of Mark's gospel that said Jesus had 15 disciples and another one that said he had 12, right? There's no variant, there's no manuscript that said the Romans threw Jesus off a cliff and another one that says, no, they crucified him outside the city. The, the, The majority of the discrepancies, the variance between the transcripts have to do with spelling, grammar, and verb tense, and punctuation. And guess what? That is true of all ancient manuscripts. Everything we know about the ancient world came from copies of copies of copies of the original documents. And these different transcripts always have variants. It is just the reality. I'll give you an example. Julius Caesar, right? Pretty well-known ancient historical figure. We know a lot about Julius Caesar. Not only what he did when he lived, when he ruled, you know, the wars he fought. We know a lot about how he felt, what he was thinking. How do we know that? Because as the Roman emperor, he had scribes, he had historians that were always around him. Kind of like the president does today, right? They're writing everything down. They're keeping a record. And listen, Roman emperors were very particular about their history being preserved, right? So that they could be remembered for eternity, right? And so pretty much everything we know, the majority of what we know about Julius Caesar comes from a book called The Gallic Wars. You can go to the library and check it out. You can find it online. The Gallic Wars, all this history about Julius Caesar, guess where that came from? Copies of copies of copies of transcripts. That's how ancient literature and ancient documents were dealt with, right? And so, Scholars, historians use three criteria to determine the accuracy of transcript information. One, how many different transcripts are there? How close is the oldest transcript to the original document? Like how many years between when the original was written and when this copy that we found in the desert is? And then how widely distributed are those? Do you find them only in just one place? Or are they spread out in different places? So here's a comparison. Gallic Wars, which is where we get most of what we know about Julius Caesar. There are 10 existing transcripts. 10. The oldest one is 900 years from the original. That's the Gallic Wars. The New Testament Gospels, we have over 5,000 existing transcripts. And the oldest one is a mere 50 years from the original. So write this down. We have more biblical manuscripts with earlier dating that are more widely distributed than any other ancient document, right? There are more transcripts spread out more places that are closer to the original documents than any other document of ancient history. So that begs the question, well then why don't academics and historians use the Bible as actual history, right? If it's got all of these transcripts, if it more than meets the criteria to be real, why don't they use it in academia? I don't know, you'd have to ask them. But my assumption is they have a bias against the supernatural. 
Because right? the Bible's full of supernatural things. And so if you don't believe in the supernatural, if your narrative is there's no such thing as supernatural, then any document, no matter how well documented it is, you're going to throw out because it contains the supernatural. That's the only thing I can guess. But when it just comes to basic standards of accuracy, the Bible's pretty high up there. You know another reason why we can trust that the Bible is reliable? Because the theme and unity of the Bible is consistent throughout. Think about this for a minute. 66 different books written by 40 different authors in three different languages who lived on three different continents over a 1,500-year period. Right? It's not like the apostle Paul knew Moses personally, right? So they're writing in very different times for very different reasons with no idea that they are literally writing God's word. They're just writing it. And yet that theme is consistent and there are no true contradictions, right? I mean, think about this. Recently, uh, George W. Bush and Dick Cheney's, their uh, memoirs came out about the same time right? And if you read them, they're very different, right? They had the same exact experience as president and vice president. They had a very different perspective. And yet you look at the Bible and it is consistent, no true contradictions. Now I know what you're thinking. Philip, I hear people say all the time, the Bible's full of contradictions, right? I had a professor in college that told me the Bible was full of contradictions and because he was smarter than me and he gave me a couple of contradictions that, that I couldn't argue with, I just figured, well, it's full of contradictions. No, it's not. Have, have you ever really checked out and researched the contradictions? Here's a great one. So the Bible says, God is love. The apostle Paul writes, Love is not jealous. Moses writes, God is a jealous God. Contradiction, right? Wrong. Two different languages, two different cultures, written with two different focuses, right? Paul's talking about the love that we express to one another. And when I am jealous, I am not truly loving. Moses is writing about God being one God who loves us so much that he's not willing to share us with idols and evil and darkness. That is love, not a contradiction, right? Gospels, the four gospels, another example. Because if you read them, They've got differences in them, right? They're very different. Like, you know, one gospel will say Jesus healed two blind men on this road. Another one says he healed one blind man. And one gospel says, you know, this event took place and then this event took place. And you think, well, it's in a different order over there. See, contradiction, right? Wrong, right? Let me ask you this. If you were investigating a crime and there were four eyewitnesses, and you called them in one at a time, and they all told the exact same story the exact same way. What would you suspect? Right? That they got together and got their story straight. In fact, I believe that the reason, the fact that there are differences in the Gospels is further truth that this was true, that what happened really did happen. Right? Now, look. I could talk about this stuff all day long, but I can see your eyes glazing over. And so I've, I've put on your outline there some additional resources 
There's actually a little QR code. You can just point your camera at it. It'll take you to a website. There's a great book by Lee Strobel called Case for Christ. It's not written heavy academically. It's very easy to read. So I would encourage you. It talks about a lot of this stuff. There's also a briefer article about all this transcript stuff that I've been talking about. All that's there for you. But here's the bottom line. As important as it is to know these facts and information about the Bible, the much more important question is, what are you going to do about it? If this is truly God's word, his expression, his revelation of himself to us, what what are you going to do about what's in here? It's one thing for you to trust in the Bible, but what really matters is, do you trust the author? Do you trust the one who not only put this together, but preserved it throughout thousands of years of history so that we could have an accurate revelation of who he is, what he's done for us? It's important, yes, that you know this. Now, I know some of you from that old school, Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. That's great for you, But let me tell you, more and more, you have friends and neighbors and children and grandchildren who are going, why should I trust this? This is just an ancient book full of contradictions. Why should I believe what's in here? And if you're not able to help them understand that, you're missing an opportunity to do the whole reason we're here as a church. And that is to be on mission, to bring the hope of Jesus to the hopeless people around them. So I hope you'll dig in deeper. I hope you'll take this. But more importantly, I hope you'll take a next step in putting this into practice in your daily life. I hope this will create a hunger for you to dive into God's word. Build your life on God's unchanging truth. Would you pray with me? Well, Jesus, so much information that it can be almost overwhelming. And so, Lord, I pray right now for your Holy Spirit to give us discernment that wherever we are in our spiritual journey, that you would just reveal what a next step of faith would look like that more than just some canonized statement of belief that we have as a church, that we would recognize that our hope is built on who you are and what you have done for us. And so, Father, help us to live that out. Renew our passion for your word, and more importantly, renew our passion and courage to live out what it says. We thank you, Lord. Move among your people right now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.